letting you out on a kind of probation. Your aunt and I hope that you can conduct yourself normally. What did they do to you in the clinic those three years? Did they cure you? Yes. Now I'm completely mad. And I'll do anything I can not to have you squander my sister's money. Please leave her alone. That still leaves Teresa and Esther for you. Leave your cousins alone, all three of them, please. <laughs> Is this a new game? <laughs> I don't trust you. Welcome to the Nashy Cast. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And tonight we come to you again with another Beyond Nashy episode. This would be uh, Beyond Nashy number 27. Yep. Because we're sticklers for numbers. That's right. And tonight we bring you a film that um, in some circles could be seen as an art house film. And in other circles rests firmly, I think, within the exploitation cinema mm-hmm. realm mm-hmm. that you and I... Mm-hmm, <laughs> dig, mm-hmm. dig into so heavily on yeah. this show and 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 on the bloody pit as well. Yes, this is a movie that straddles the uh, the line between those two things, and I think it does it brilliantly. And I think that um, well, if you've never seen a Bell from Hell, folks, you really really ought mm-hmm. to. Mm-hmm. But we'll, we'll spoiler alert on that right off. If you're wondering what our opinions yeah. are, I think we're both pretty strongly in favor of this film. It's full of family values, which we treasure. <laughs> On this uh, on this show, yes, yes, of course, <laughs> tons of family values. Uh, yes, <laughs> as in inventive ways to murder yeah. your family in ways that uh, are probably going to. Uh, how is he not going to incriminate himself? That's, uh, yeah, yeah, wow. that's I, yeah. I don't know. That's, I don't it's, it's a strange. <laughs> I, I think that he didn't give a shit. I no. think that he had reached the point where he didn't care anymore. Anyway, we'll get to yes, that. We'll, yes, get to yes. that. we'll get to the plot later on, but. We'd like to thank you once again for coming to listen to us here oh. on the NashiCast. And uh, we would like to also, be, uh, well, this would be our, this is our ninth year of doing the show. Yes. And I think that this is our seventh 
or eighth time. I, I have lost track of the number yeah. of times that we have been nominated mm-hmm. for a Rondo yes. in the uh, in the uh, best multimedia slash podcast category. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I should say that I am a little excited. I am excited to be mm-hmm. nominated. I think we both are always oh, absolutely, excited. absolutely. I mean, if anyone who doesn't know, and probably anyone listening to the show does know, but but the Rondos are kind of the the gold standard for monster kids like us. I've said many times that you can keep your Oscars, your Grammys, all that stuff. You know, I think for People that grew up the way we did, you know, the Rondo Classic Horror Awards. Uh, wait, are, wait, wait, just a second. Yeah. Is there a possibility that the Grammys will start handing out a statue for podcasts? <laughs> yeah, probably not. Oh, oh. No, it's, you know, although they should, okay. it's audio, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, they really ought to, but I, you know, I, you got me excited. Would be, who would just be, a second. Who, I guess, are there broadcasting awards? Maybe they do a podcast. Uh, I'm sure there's some you kind of, po- there's got to be some kind of podcast awards out there. You know, there probably are kind of, uh, as a matter of fact, I know there are general um, yeah. podcast awards, and there have been for for several years because some of the political podcasts I listen to, I know, have won certain awards. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. yeah, they, they do exist. We won't get one of those either, but that's okay. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but the point is, the Rondo is the one that we would. That just being nominated is the one that we 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 appreciate. We appreciate that. Yeah, we, we prefer yeah, yeah. That. Ex- exactly. And as as with each year, we're always well. We both we both we always use the the Rondo listings to uh, kind of uh, check off things that we were probably unaware oh, of in different yeah. categories. Yeah. The, the the books and the films mm-hmm. the films we're aware of and yeah. television episodes and things like that. But there are also there are always so many books and magazines yeah. published every year that it's difficult to actually keep up. Yeah. And uh, it's really great to have the chance to have the that listing that the Rondos puts out come out and show us. Well, I mean, I, it all, I always end up adding you know books to my to to get list, mm-hmm. you know, my wish list on Amazon yeah. and every other list that I maintain somewhere online yeah. where Me too. <laughs> I, I know I need to get this book and read it one day. <laughs> yep. Another bit of excitement in the Rondos this year. It was a little bit. Of a, I have to admit, it's a bit of a surprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, some good friends of ours uh, have for the last few years done a put together a Halloween arts and crafts show here in Nashville uh, that takes place has has taken place in a couple of different locations. Always uh, around the end of September, uh, as people are starting to get in the Halloween spirit, it's called Monsters in Merriment. And uh, just uh, some amazing uh, artists, painters, you know, sculptors, all sorts of great stuff on, on display. Yeah. It's been a really big show, gr- drawing a bigger crowd every year. And uh, they're up for a nomination in the best event category in the Rondos. And and uh, I was very excited for them because uh, my band, Secret Commonwealth, plays has played the show the last couple of years. And so I've had kind of a first-hand, you know, close-up look at the work that these people put into it. Our friends basically... Uh, uh, <laughs> work themselves to into an early grave, no pun intended, uh, to do this, uh, uh, to, to put this show on, and uh, literally just about wear themselves out. But uh, I was, I was, I was happy to, uh, you know, send them the message about that nomination, and uh, I think they were very excited about it. So good to see the recognition coming in there. Yeah, for, yeah, it's it's always kind of a surprise to see things like that, uh, things like that happen because I mean, you and I at this point. You know, not, not to toot our own horns, but we kind of expect to get nominated mm-hmm. for doing for mm-hmm. doing this show, if for no other reason, simply because no one else is plumbing yeah. these depths. Yeah. You know, yeah. no one else is actually going out there and running down mm-hmm. Spanish horror films and talking about them for mm-hmm. a couple of hours. Mm-hmm. And so, if you know there's some interest in this subject, then you know people are going to end up listening to us one way or another. Yeah. But there are so many different uh, events of the type that end up in the best event category. Uh, I have to be honest. I was a little, I was, I was thrilled, mm-hmm. but I was shocked that it hadn't even occurred to me that that would be the perfect kind of nomination for something like Monsters and Merriment. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So congratulations to our buddies there and to our other buddies uh, who've uh, who've got nominated for audio commentaries and and articles and books yeah. and all that good stuff. So various various books and audio commentaries from people that we know and mm-hmm. occasionally get to actually hang out with. Yep. Yep. So oh, and <laughs> and I, even uh, what Larry Larry. Oh sure, Doctor Gangrene, our old friend Doctor Gangrene, got yeah. several nominations in a couple of a few different categories there. So. Chris Herzog, and of course the mm-hmm. the always uh, the always nominated Mark Maddox. Uh-huh. So mm-hmm. uh, yes, go people vote vote in the rondos, mm-hmm. and uh, don't forget the Lone Nashy cast. We uh-huh. love to have your support. <laughs> it's easy. It's just a little box. You just put a little check in there, and it's, and it's, it's yeah. It's simple. It's we can easy. guide your hand if you'd like. <laughs> <laughs> yes, really. I can send you my ballot. You could just copy it. I don't care. <laughs> As long as it comes from your email address, everything is everything is good. Cont- contact me. <laughs> I don't think I don't know that we've actually said the name of the movie we're doing tonight. Maybe we yeah, did. We oh, did we? Did we say Bell from Hell? Okay. Oh, of course. Oh, 1973 is a Bell from Hell. Okay. Yeah, we we mentioned it at the time. I just know we're bad about doing that. And now oh, we talk for 20 minutes about a film, terrible. and then oh, wait a minute, it has a title. Yeah, <laughs> it has several titles, and we'll tell you those in a few minutes. It <laughs> it, it does have several titles. Mm. Uh, there's uh, a number of interesting stories to go along with this. Um, yeah. I think that. Um, there's a truly sad story to go along with it, of course, Absolutely. as well. Yep. That reminded me very heavily of another film director uh, from just a few years previous to 1973 and uh, an unfortunate yep. event. But we'll get to that as we get into the film. Uh, right now, once again, want to remind everyone that if you want to contact the show, the email address is... Oh, I was about to get my own. Holy crap, I did that. I almost <laughs> oh, did it again. Oh, you'd be bombarded. The email address. Yeah, I would be bombarded. <laughs> my email. The email address for the podcast is nashicast at gmail.com. And uh, we'd like to encourage you to not only listen to this show, but if you enjoy uh, Troy and I babbling at each other mm. on the uh, Nashicast, whether we're covering a Nashi film or just another piece of Spanish horror awesomeness from the past. Also, uh, listen to us over on The Bloody Pit, the other podcast that we, um, we share with, uh, well, a bunch of other people as well. Uh, next month, Troy and I will be returning to our series on 1940s Universal Horror Films with uh, one that's not that well-known or, or often seen. Uh, mm-hmm. That would be Horror Island. Uh, not, not seen by me, so I'm looking forward to uh, oh, yeah. that. This is one that I've not seen, so yeah, definitely, definitely looking forward to doing this one. We'll, we'll remind everybody again of this at the end of the show, but keep in mind that um, uh, I don't think we'll have a, Na- a Beyond Nashi or a Nashi cast for April, but we'll be back in May with another episode. Uh, and I, I hate to say this, we're probably going to have to keep you, we might, we might just have to keep you in suspense yeah. <laughs> about what the May episode will be. Right. Because I think it's a little bit up in the air about uh, yeah. just what the heck it is. In other words, Troy and I have we have no idea yeah. what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, that we're that, that yeah. we're planning into April mm-hmm. is a it's it's mm-hmm. like I picture myself as Sisyphus. We're rolling yeah. that rock uphill, <laughs> yeah. and as soon as we get that thing recorded, that exactly. it slips away, rolls back right back down to the bottom. So here we go, folks. <laughs> yes. So we'll take a quick break and come right back after a few brief messages and talk about the 1973 film, A Bell from Hell. We let things pile up in the DVR. We add them to our queues. We wait for the DVDs and Blu-rays. We time shift. The Time Shifters podcast. Sci-fi, horror, fantasy, superheroes, comedy, action, film, television... Maybe some not-so-current events. Find us on iTunes or at timeshifterspodcast.com.
Bell from Hell, 1973. Um, Spanish horror film. Let's call it what it is, mm-hmm. because it mm-hmm. makes no pretense about being what it is. This yeah. is a Spanish horror film. Mm-hmm. but More psychological than supernatural. Well, yeah. exa- exactly. Mm-hmm. Uh, the film does play with the tropes of supernatural oh, horror films. Yeah. Yeah. While also digging really heavily into some of the more, um, shall we say, disturbing imagery that's possible to have in a film of this type. Yeah. A warning at the top for everyone. Um, mm-hmm. There is some. There, there is some. Um, I guess you might call it animal cruelty, but it's really footage mm-hmm. inside a slaughterhouse. Mm-hmm. I want to warn everybody of this up front. Yeah, there's a good solid two to three minutes of footage inside a slaughterhouse where you're watching uh, cattle be slaughtered mm-hmm. and uh, carved up and rendered mm-hmm. for food. Yeah. So uh, be aware of that. Going into this, if that kind of thing disturbs you, this might be, you know, you might want someone to maybe tell you where those segments are. Right. And skip over them. Yeah. Um, It definitely, it's definitely, the film definitely takes advantage of some early 70s permissiveness, shall we say. Yes. Um, And it kind of taps into a kind of thing that was going on in in 70s horror. Um, We saw it in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, too, you know, is that kind of using slaughterhouses as a metaphor for humans you know human beings as uh, you know being led to slaughters you know or being you know or this sort of thing well this was done throughout the 70s there's mm-hmm. a there's, yeah. a, fa- there's yeah. a fantastic genre line film called fascination that has oh yeah uh, some sequences that take place inside a slaughterhouse mm-hmm. and uh, we saw some stuff like that in blue eyes of the broken doll right but i think and as in that case too and with this i mean if you're not in if you know you may find that type of footage not the kind of thing you'd prefer to watch you know i feel the same way but i don't think in this case it's showing anything that didn't actually happen. And I don't think it's like, I don't think there's anything here that's like cruelty for the sake, for of, the sake of filming. You know, I think everything they show is, 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 is stuff that was the day to day realities in a slaughterhouse. So, and, and I do think that there really are kind of at least two categories when you start talking about seeing the death of an animal right. on, on screen mm-hmm. uh, in a, in a narrative film. I mean, in a, mm-hmm. in, a, in a, in a fiction, in a, in a, in a piece of fiction, let's be, mm-hmm. let's be clear. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are two, there, there are the kinds where you're essentially as this film does taking the cameras inside a, mm-hmm. a slaughterhouse mm-hmm. and you know, whether or not the cameras were there or not, this was what's happening. Right. This is yeah. how meat yeah. gets, yeah. gets, um, placed inside those mm. nice little plastic wrap things yep. inside your local grocery store. Yeah. And then there's the other category, which I find a, a lot less defensible, which is when an animal is being killed on screen for the titillation yeah. or the shock value that's given by seeing an animal be killed on screen. Sure, and, absolutely, uh, we, yeah. John Hudson and I have run across this uh, repeatedly. In Margariti films. <laughs> in the Margarita. Antonio Margariti films that we cover. Because uh, we we're always a little shocked when when yeah. when all the animals escape a margariti film alive. <laughs> yeah, uh, it seems uh, it seems that uh, snakes get it get it the worst in a margariti mm. film. Mm. If there's a snake and it's shown on screen, you can pretty much start mm. the countdown for when yeah. it's going to get you know its mm. head chopped off or ba- head mm. bashed in mm. or something of this nature. That is not what this is, but. That does not make this. <laughs> Doesn't less make it disturbing. easier to watch. No, yeah. no, and it does fit into the story. There's a reason why it has oh, yeah. it. The reason why the character is there at the slaughterhouse, but uh, which I think is quite ingenious. Yeah, yeah. Um, first of all, before we get into the plot, what are the? Uh, I know there are a number of varying titles for this from around the yeah, world. Yeah, um, yeah, not a huge amount, but the ones that of differing, but the ones there are, are some interesting ones. The Italian title for a bell from hell is a few steps from hell, complete oh. with the ellipsis between from and hell. A few steps from, and you get that pause. Hell. hell. 
Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, the Italian drama uh, Yes, uh, yes. Uh, the Russians, on the other hand, uh, were apparently really getting into early ACDC at that point because they <laughs> called it Hell Bell, but they left the S's off. So uh, they Hell forgot Bell? the Hell Bell. Really? Yeah, Hell Bell. Mm-hmm. Actually, that kind of works. Yeah, it does. It does. Uh, here's one I think is actually good and certainly fits the film. As a German title is A Dead Man La- Laughs Last. And that's a very apt description of It kind of makes it sound like a Edgar Wallace creamy, but I think they were yeah. trying to make everything sound like <laughs> Edgar Wallace Well, in creamy, 73, but. I guess, you know, that's, there's, st- there's still enough. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it could also sound, it could be either be a, a German creamy or an Italian giallo. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> now, I... I will. It's it's funny because this the list that I pulled these from on IMDb did not have this title. That's what I love though is just because it's speculation, food for thought. But the print that we used to do review this film, fine. You know, there's not many prints. I mean, there's not many choices out there. But the the print we were able to score to be able to uh, review this film is uh, the on screen title is simply the bells. Now I have a theory about that. I can almost guarantee you, whoever put this out under this title tried to tie it back to Edgar Allan Poe uh, because, <laughs> I mean, I'm serious because, you know, oh, think maybe, about it, maybe. early 70s, you're still kind of in that last tail end of some exploitation, some horror films, exploiters of horror films and distributors liking to tie it back to literary antecedents still, yeah, you know, I mean, true. you're not too far removed from the the really, the, the, the heyday of the Poe films, the Corman Poe films, you're, you're kind of past that, but I think I could still see the fact that it's got a bell, the fact that there is a raven in the film. I can totally see somebody saying, I'm going to take this film and I'm going to market it as an Edgar Allan Poe film. Well, not only that, and without giving too much away, and by the way, people, we, we, oh, yes, we will not other things be, too, yes. yeah, we will not be spoiling the uh, the last chunk of this film. Because Thank I don't, you for telling me, because I forgot yeah, to ask I you. Want, I, I, want, I, wanted, I wanted to make sure that everybody knew. We're not going to spoil Including your podcast ending. partner. Yeah, no, <laughs> watch, what the, watch what you say. Hey, people, learn along with Troy. That's no, right. We're, we're not, not going to spell the last segment of this. I mean, we're not going to spoil it. Yes. Spoil it. We're going to mm-hmm. spell it out. But I do I do want to say that there is an Edgar Allan Poe element to this yeah, story that's very much kind of, without giving too much away, a little mm-hmm. uh, cask of Amontillado. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Yep. So, uh, so anyway, I just I just feel like I would I'd, I'd, I would love to see where this print was distributed and what the posters for it and what the advertising looked like and just to see if they might have tied it back to Edgar Allan Poe. Just, you know, curious. That. Uh, yeah, yeah. You, you, you could be right. It didn't, that did not occur to me beyond just the realization that I, that I made, made notes about the fact that mm. I didn't remember the uh, possible cask of Amontillado mm-hmm. kind of yeah. parallel that yeah. takes place mm. at a certain point in the film. But... 1973. I have to wonder the print that's out there is it's it's a it's a, from a DVD. There's a there's a there's a pretty darn good DVD out there of it that's still in print as far mm-hmm. as I can tell. Or if it's out of print, then mm-hmm. there's still enough copies out there that the the DVD still goes for a very mm-hmm. reasonable price. Mm-hmm. And it does have uh, this being a Spanish Spanish film made in the 70s. This is still during the reign of Generalissimo Franco. So this film did have a, there's a there's a specific scene that does have nudity in it. Uh, so the, the that particular s- scene was shot with nudity, mm-hmm. and then a clothed version. And the DVD does include an alternate, um, uh, the alternate scene where the the woman in question does remain clothed. But I, I was really impressed, by the way, that even the nude scene was framed brilliantly. Yeah, yeah. So that yes, it's clear that she's naked. There's absolutely mm-hmm. no doubting it. But the offending, mm-hmm. uh, shall we say, body areas. Mm-hmm. Are always masked either by um, the head, the headboard, the brass, uh, yeah. the brass bars of the headboard of the mm-hmm. bed, mm-hmm. 
or uh, the way in which uh, the the woman in question is lying upon the bed mm-hmm. just perfectly covers nipples and pubic mm-hmm. hair. Yep. And so uh, it's fascinating that even that clean a piece of female nudity would not be good yeah. enough to pass the the Spanish censors. Still had to film the closed version. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, very very interesting. Uh, it's 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 an interesting scene. We'll. We'll get to uh, some detail on that uh, later on. Let's start with um, the fact that this really is kind of a basic plot line because it is, at its heart, a kind of twisty, turny mm-hmm. revenge plot. Mm. And it's not one that it's not a revenge plot that makes itself obvious from the beginning. Mm-hmm. But then once you realize, mm-hmm. I mean, there there are little bits of little bits of information that are given as the story goes along. And if you're under any illusions about what the main character's mm-hmm. <laughs> reason for mm-hmm. action is mm-hmm. by, say, 30 minutes into it, you're not paying attention. Right. But but is it, I think it's fair to say, though, that your perception of him may change a bit during the course of the film a it little bit. It certainly you know, does. From what it starts as to what it becomes as. You know, it's, I think the film plays its cards very well. I mean, well very, it's me, very, very cleverly. Oh, it, it's, the, it's, way okay, it, yes. the way it holds back, the way it keeps you guessing. Mm-hmm. Shows you things early on that don't pay off till way a lot till later. Way at the end, it yeah. requires some attention and some patience. Uh, but it's but it's continued. Not I wouldn't even say patience because I think it's so enjoyable as it goes. It's so fascinating yeah. as it goes that I think it's just uh, I, I, I don't think so. I don't mean it in that response. Oh, but, no, said, no. but unless you're just sitting there really just dying to know what's going to happen, then yeah, <laughs> you, you, it's going to keep you. You're, it's not a predictable film. I don't feel. And that is really a bit of a surprise considering mm-hmm. that. When someone tells me that I'm about to watch a revenge story, uh-huh. there's really only a couple or three different ways this story can go. I mean, right. there's always that old thought of you know that that, mm-hmm. that the old the old idea of you know mm-hmm. he who seeks vengeance should mm-hmm. dig two graves, mm-hmm. and there is an aspect of this story that points you into thinking that that's how this tale is yeah. going to go, but it's much more complicated than that, mm-hmm. and I think part of it is is that we're not presented with a main character that it's easy to feel sympathy for until you've almost gotten all the way through the entire narrative until you've yeah. reached a yeah. certain point yeah to begin to understand mm-hmm. that even though and this is not a spoiler even though he might mm-hmm. just be crazy yeah He's also justified in, an, and mm. if not all of his actions, at least a good number of them. Yeah, and he may be a character who almost all the cards were stacked. I mean, you know, or had yeah. a, you know, was born into a stacked deck against, you know, stacked deck against him. You know, and then that, that, that then it plays on your, you know, how much do you excuse? You know, how much is too much and that right. sort of thing. So, well, the film starts with our main character, John. Or if in the Spanish version, Juan. Juan, right? Of course. Not, not, not that it matters, but yeah. it's John. He is being uh, let out of an asylum. Mm-hmm. Now he's a young man, clearly in his twenties, mm-hmm. probably mid twenties. He's being let out of this asylum, and the doctor who's been taking care of him while he, while during his stay, is telling him that um, it's kind of giving him the information about uh, how often he'll need to come back and visit mm-hmm. for uh, you know periodic check ins. And uh, wishes him well and sends him on his way. So John leaves um, this asylum on his motorcycle. And once outside the gates of the uh, grounds of the asylum, takes out the paperwork that the doctor gave him and burns it right there. Yeah. So we know flat out that this man has absolutely no intention of ever coming back to this place. Whether he Mm -hmm. thinks that... At that point, you don't know if he just thinks, you know, I don't care what the consequences of this action are. Or if he just thinks that by the time that I'm supposed to be back here, and they, mm. you know, they send someone looking for me, mm. 
it won't matter anymore. Yeah, and the first you know, first thing we see of him is he, he's got his little workshop there in his asylum where he's made he he yeah. he take he he's making a plaster cast of him of his of himself. We've seen that he's made a life size figure of himself with a, with a face that looks like him. So we know right off that he's you know it tells us he's clever, creative. Then his meeting with the doctor, he comes off as as definitely very arrogant. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, that's kind of the first things right off we're shown about him. And that arrogance uh, plays into what we continue to learn mm-hmm. about this character mm-hmm. because yeah. it would appear that he definitely was from a family of some wealth. Mm-hmm. And um, he returns to the, the home where he grew up, and it's a... You know, it's it's a really nice home out mm-hmm. in the Spanish mm-hmm. countryside. I'm not sure exactly where. I don't think they get very clear. I don't. It's not. It's not. It doesn't matter. They they don't make specific information known to us. As right. the, at least in the uh, at least in the English dub, he begins to put the house back into order the way he wants to. Mm-hmm. Um, this was his mother's house. We find out. Right. We find out that he uh, he lived in this house with uh, well with his father and his mother, and both of them are dead now. Mm-hmm. And as the film goes on, we get more and more information about mm-hmm. uh, how they passed and what, mm-hmm. the, what the circumstances around that were and how their passing probably had something to do with why John was in the asylum. Yep. This is where this is the section of the movie where he goes and he spends at least a day, if not a couple of days. The film's not really clear yeah. on that. Working inside a, um, in, oh, I'm sorry, in, yes, inside a slaughterhouse. I was trying, I, <laughs> I was trying to think, is it an avatar? <laughs> yeah, is it yeah, a, yeah. I mean, what's, but it is. It's it's a slaughterhouse. He works there for a few days, learning the trade, and we see the actor in mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. with uh, you know being instructed by the men who are actually doing the killing of the cows and the and the, oh. the you know the stripping of the hide off the cows and hanging them up on hooks and and all this we see the actor in there being taught and shown how to mm-hmm. do this and actually mm-hmm. doing some of this along with the people who are teaching him and then at the end of the day he leaves and is paid for his single day and the uh, person at the cash window asks why he's not going to come yeah. back because i would think that in this job that's not all too uncommon as you yeah. you work for a little while and you realize it's just not something that <laughs> yeah. you can do long term yeah and john's reply to the person paying him for the time that he's worked in this slaughterhouse is, I've learned everything I need to know. That should send up some warning signs. <laughs> yes. That should ring a warning bell. That is the mm-hmm. first moment in the film where the uh, rather clever script mm-hmm. is dropping mm-hmm. right in front of you mm-hmm. a bit of, uh, shall we say, foreshadowing. Oh, yes. Ah, so mm-hmm. he... Mm-hmm. He's going to go on to to like slaughter cows. Is that is that what John's <laughs> going goal into, is? His goal in life, and... he, yeah, yeah. He's going to raise cattle, and he wants to know how to slaughter them himself, <laughs> right. right? Yeah, there you go. That's sure. Yeah, that's got to be what it is, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway. Well, I know you won't believe me, but I've uh, prayed a lot for you and for your mother. I know you were the only one who tried to help her. Yes, well, she couldn't believe that the church forgave her while her family and friends did not. Often the worst enemies of the church are the hypocritical bigots and the phony Catholics and the phony mad and the phony sane and everything that's phony. Hmm. What'll you do now? Tell me, son. You wouldn't want to know. Hmm. Now, I don't know 
much about this actor that portrays John. Um, yeah. Renaud Varley, I guess, is his name. I French think. actor. Um, a pretty impressive damn mm. career. Okay. Well, I, I did not get a chance to, to really delve into seeing if I've seen him anything else, but he's, he's certainly certainly very good in the part, I mean, I yeah. think. But one thing that occurred to me, too, is because from the first, he's been let out of asylum, so we're starting to wonder, you know, is it, what is this guy's psych, psychotic potential? And I don't know if it occurred to you, but... I thought he had a really striking resemblance to another famous on-screen psycho, Andrew Robinson, who was in oh. played the killer in Dirty Harry. Oh, that's and I, yeah, I just he really, really reminds me of Andrew Robinson. I just wondered if I, I, I always wonder if that had something possibly to do with his casting because of how popular Dirty Harry was. Uh, but that's who he really, really makes me think of. Well, I, I don't know that much about him. I will admit uh, he was he was in a number of movies and TV and TV shows mm-hmm. uh, over the years. Uh, you know, not you know triple digits, right? But uh, he's in a number. He's in a Visconti film. He was in The Damned by Visconti, oh, right, yeah. and you know, just just I think a mm-hmm. year or so before he made this film. And most of the films that that the reason that you and I probably have never seen this guy in any other film is that it seems that a lot mm-hmm. of his work was either on was either on uh, European television. Okay. So things that you know we wouldn't have the opportunity to see because they're not the kind of thing that generally gets translated into English mm-hmm. or shown in any mm-hmm. in, in, with any uh, regularity mm-hmm. on on anything that we'd have access to. Right. But also because uh, the the movies that he seems to have been a part of are like you know a Visconti film, which is not something that necessarily is going to cross our path without us seeking it out. Mm-hmm. But in this film, yeah, he's. First of all, he's a very handsome man, mm-hmm. and he's also very good in the role. Yeah. And there is—you're right—I had not put—I had not made that connection that he kind of does look like Andrew Robinson. You're right, but mm-hmm. it's at the same time, it's um, there's a there's a quality to his face. He can swing very effectively between a very charming, mm-hmm. graceful, almost beautific mm-hmm. facial expression. Mm. And at the same time, just instantaneously slide into a look that is much, I won't say scary, mm. but something much more ambivalent, something yeah. that makes you get to, that makes you makes you feel as if perhaps this man mm-hmm. is on the, you know, the, that thin line between mm-hmm. sane and insane or mm-hmm. uh, uh, perhaps he's unbalanced in some way. And of course, mm-hmm. this character is written in such a way to keep us as a viewer no matter how concentrated you may be on paying attention to that character and the various subtle things that might be put into a performance to give you a clue toward whether or not the man is on solid mental footing or not the script builds his character in such a way that he tells us up front without saying it that he has got a plan. He yeah, is very yeah. clearly setting about once he moves mm-hmm. back into mm-hmm. his mm-hmm. into that mm-hmm. rather palatial country estate and starts um, moving, you know, moving animals into the place, <laughs> birds and various mm-hmm. things like this. He's also setting up uh, some interesting reel to reel tape equipment with with uh, with uh, music mm-hmm. and all kinds mm-hmm. of different yeah. pieces of his own voice recorded mm-hmm. to be able to play through spe- speaker systems that are set throughout the house. And he just seems to be doing a lot of different things that seems as if they have a purpose. Yeah. But at the same time, the other thing that seems to be his main joy in life is 
increasingly odd and sometimes totally terrifying yeah. practical jokes. Yes, yes. They, they get sort of get crueler as they go along, you know, and they, mm-hmm. and they have a more dangerous edge as they go along. The um, first few times we see him do something that is one of these rather cruel practical jokes, um, we're not let in on them being practical jokes until the person that he's playing the joke on yes. is let in on it. Right. And that makes it that it makes it very effective because okay, for instance, there's a I don't want to jump around too much, but the fact that we're not gonna talk about the final segment right, of the film right. means that we've got a little bit of time to play with here. Yeah. There's a sequence where he turns the he he and another character are outside and he is kind of uh shall we say, confessing or apologizing to a, in, in a certain way for past actions that mm-hmm. he that this other person may have actually felt um, deserved some kind of recompense in a way, mm-hmm. that there needed to be some kind of statement made. And he, he's, he apologizes. But at the same time, he then turns away from them, and then when he turns back, he's... He says that he feels so bad that maybe you know, maybe he should do something. And one of the one of the things he mentions is maybe I should just maybe if I just clawed my own eyes out. And he reaches up yeah. and goes. It makes makes a move, and it seems as if he does tear his own eyes out of his head. Yeah. yeah. And what he's done is very cleverly attach a you know a, a prosthetic piece over each eye as he put his hands up as he palms mm-hmm. them over his over his eyes. So that it looks as if he's done some, you know, violence to his own eyes, mm-hmm. and even in his palms, reaches, you know, holds his mm-hmm. palms out and has fake eyes mm-hmm. in the palms of his hands. Of course, of course, freaks this woman out completely. Yeah, yeah, and I don't think he expects it to traumatize her as bad as it does. But then her trauma leads him to play another prank, which is even crueler, really. Is, yeah. So, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Now, here's the thing. Here's the thing that I think that is is utterly fascinating, watching this film in 2019. Right. When we see him do this, mm-hmm. we there, there's that little thing in the back of your mind as a film viewer who goes, wait a minute, we're only X number of minutes into this 91-minute film. There's no way this, this main character just clawed his own eyes out. And also, when we're looking at the effect mm-hmm. on screen, mm-hmm. it's an effective piece of special makeup effect. Yeah. But it's also clear that, you know, to our eye, that it is an effect, that it's a yeah. trick. Yeah, yeah, But as a film viewer in 2019, we're not sure if it's just because we can see through it because this mm. is 40 years yeah, ago. Yeah, right, yeah. And therefore, this is something that was, was supposed to pass muster as an actual thing on screen back then. Or... What it turns out to be, which is a very elaborate joke he's playing on someone mm-hmm. who's standing about twenty feet from him. Yeah, yeah. And speaking of the just the makeup is uh, this is you know we do these Beyond Nashies. You know we've traditionally kind of talk about the Beyond Nashies as being we call them that because of that they'll have someone or multiple people associated with them that worked with Paul Nashie. And this film is for the most part not one of those films, except the makeup artist who's become one of my favorites from this time, <laughs> Julian Ruiz, yeah. uh, who we've, we've seen, uh, who did uh, Horror Express. There's our, our, our traditional mention of Horror Express in every episode <laughs> that we have to. 
Uh, and also the makeup for Horror Rises from the Tomb, the, the Nashi yeah. classic, uh, The House That Screamed, The Hanging Woman. So he's also responsible for the makeup here. And so he's a definite tie to the Nashi verse there. The only other one, and it's kind of a stretch, is Vivica Linfors because she was in King of Kings. And I think Paul Nashi was like in one so yeah a non-speaking yeah. you know, bit role in the background so that's a yeah. that's that's kind of pushing pushing it but that uh, is pushing it a little bit but uh, yeah but um, you're right about this this scene and 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 I um taking speaking of now two kind of things that are really truly technically impressive and I want to go back to the first prank that he pulls I think is my that's actually my favorite scene in the whole movie oh okay and the film is full of I mean I think it's wonderfully made from start to finish but when his his aunt, uh, we haven't really gotten to the character's aunts and, and, and his cousins, but anyway, when he's visiting his aunt and she has a visitor and he is telling, setting the visitor up by telling him that uh, the yes. aunt, that his three cousins died. It's brilliant. It's oh, my truly, God. It, first of all, it's a great scene. Well, let, let, let's set this yeah, up. Yeah, yeah. Um, very quickly, once uh, John is back home and is and is moving back, moving back into the house, oh, oh. Um it becomes clear that the only family he has left is his aunt, who is a uh, a, a woman who uh, is wheelchair bound, and his three co- his three female cousins. Now, these three female cousins, um, we never are given a, a specific information, but it seems as if he may have had a romantic entanglement with one of them before going into the asylum. Oh and, yeah, and, there's and some it, definite baggage between him exactly. and the cousins, and yeah. But there, there, but there also seems to have been uh, the possibility that if there was the potential of a romantic entanglement, that might have some. That might be one of the reasons why it was seen as a good idea to, to you send him to, to the asylum. Yeah, we yeah. need to have you away from these <laughs> we, these girls for a period of time, and even if the even if the reasoning was just. Um, possible sexual assault mm. instead of murder mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. still a valid mm-hmm. a valid fear especially yeah. when you realize that it does appear that at least two of these mm. female cousins yeah. harbor some mm. rather attraction let's just call it mm. attraction for for yeah. john yeah and I, I understand. I, John, John's an attractive man. Yeah. And the third one may be kind of growing into that, yeah, heading John, that way. She's still kind so. of the innocent of the, but she's sort of maybe heading that way too. So, yeah. and, and and I think that it's well, and so you have that setup. So yeah. that's that's the situation. And as the as the film progresses, just to to go ahead and lay this piece of information out there, uh, it becomes clear that John is under the impression, and it's not too far away from obvious fact. That his aunt may have uh, had him uh, put away, so that she could maintain control over the wealth that mm. John's parents actually owned. Yeah, the so, aunt being played by the great Vivica, Vivica Linford. Ah, uh, yes, and Vivica Linford. By the way, um, if if you start watching this film, and you start to wonder. Where the hell do I know her from? She's Aunt Bedelia oh, from, yes. from Creepshow. <laughs> Whose single scene is just brilliant in that movie. <laughs> well, it's, well it, and that's true. But at the same time, Vivica Linford, uh, yeah, she my had a God, great career, what yeah. an incredible career. She's yeah, a Swedish-born yeah. actress who was brought over to Hollywood in the 40s after having some success in Europe uh, with the idea that she might uh, might become kind of a, another uh, Greta Garbo or something like that. But mm. um, I rem- I. Definitely remember seeing her in uh, the Errol Flynn film, uh, The Adventures of Don Juan. Mm-hmm. And um, 
because I'm an Errol Flynn lunatic, but she's been in about a, zip, mm. a, a blue bajillion films. Oh, yeah. And the thing is, once you start looking through her career, you realize, oh, I've seen her in just a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. The things that stood out to me from her career was the the, uh, the film noir classic Dark City. Yeah. yeah. And in the uh, in 1962, the amazing uh, Hammer production, uh, These Are the Damned or oh, The yeah. Damned. Yeah, yeah. Just an amazing, amazing mm-hmm. film with an ending that kind of reminds me of the tone of the ending of this film, by uh, the way. Yes, it is. Uh, there's, a, there's a little hint for yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. Uh-huh. But the thing is, uh, Vivica Linford also did a lot of American television mm-hmm. in the 70s, including mm-hmm. popping up on uh, on at least one soap opera. Mm-hmm. I think, um, yeah, All My Children. She was on All My Children for a, sl- a slew of episodes. So, Very busy woman. So, yes, all mm-hmm. of us horror aficionados, all we know mm-hmm. her from is Creep yeah. Show. Yeah. Unless you start really digging into, <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, a non-monster mm-hmm. Hammer film from 1962, or yeah. you're an Errol Flynn fanatic. <laughs> but there's just her career was yeah. very, very long, and yeah. she's so she's always good. She that's is. that's kind of the the terrifying thing is that this woman has kind of been hiding in plain sight yeah. to a large degree, and it took me seeing her in this to really look hard at her. And first, first of all, she's fantastic in this. Yeah, she's got a very different. She's got a difficult role. She's got yeah. a lot of things that she has to do, and she can never overplay her hand. Right. And uh, she's doing it all in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. We were talking earlier about how uh, the, the lead actor playing John is having to kind of straddle a fence between um, giving us the impression of mm-hmm. uh, of being sane or insane or uh, just where just where he falls on the, on the on the line of uh, <laughs> mental cohesion at times. Yeah. She's also having to to kind of straddle a fence yeah. in this yeah. performance because she's very well aware that legally. John's out of the asylum. Legally, mm. he's a free man, mm. but that he also is on a form of parole. They yeah. are, you know, there's a string tied to him that the, you know, the forces of the government can yank on at any time mm. to put him back in there if he steps over and does something he's not supposed to do. But she can't appear to be hoping that that's what happens. She clearly seems to think that she has to remain the person who is constantly putting forth the idea that I just want what's best for you. I just want you yeah. to be healthy mm-hmm. and happy. And also, I want you to stay the fuck away from your cousins. Yeah. <laughs> she yeah. does make that clear. <laughs> and on that side, we can probably agree with her. <laughs> yes. That. Yes. So, so yes. To, so, back to this. this thing, when we first... We, we, we hear her before we see her because she's, yes. she's making tea or whatever for for or for him and even then we see him start to go through her stuff i mean we're very much seeing john is looking at at this point he's looking like the very very predatory very calculating person he's in his aunt's aunt's house Mm -hmm. he's there to have dinner with uh with Mm -hmm. the aunt and Mm -hmm. uh the the the, uh, cousins Mm -hmm. but the cousins are not there yet Mm -hmm. but this other guest is in the house yeah and uh and then so john is is (laughs) <laughs> tells his guest this story about how his you know three cousins died in a boating accident years ago and how the aunt every night you know makes this it serves puts out these servings for them because she's convinced that they're going to One come day. home after all these years you know so he set up this guy to you know to think that these these girls have passed away long ago and so as the aunt comes out and starts setting all these you know play sets and they start to hear singing up, and she says, "Do you hear that?" And, and yeah, yeah, and it's it's at night. Oh, it's and such it's a, an awesome, it's a, it's a oh, beautiful, it's a foggy, foggy yeah. night. And the door's open, and John has told the guy, "I have to leave that door open." He said because 
They say, I'm sorry, it's cold in here. I have to leave this door open because she insists on it because she's just so convinced that... She, she, she wants the door open so that, <laughs> so that when, the, when the girls come back, they'll be able to just walk right into the house. So this beautiful, this wonderful scene where, of course, the girls are coming home and they are <laughs> they are singing, you hear them, and this poor guy <laughs> starts to hear these voices too. And the look of terror on his face. <laughs> I mean, not only is the scene funny, but it's also so beautifully filmed. The way these yeah. girls enter this, come through the fog here is just, uh, like I said, I just think it's one of the best greatest scenes in, in, in all these films that we've these Spanish films we've talked about and that's saying a lot because there's been because there's wonderful stuff yeah. but this is to me I think as good as any sequence in any of these films it's and just it masterfully on, it, done it works on multiple layers oh, because is, yeah. within the within the structure of the story it's mm-hmm. it's it gives you a great a great mm-hmm. uh, uh Example of how this character loves to play these kind of practical jokes yeah. and the elaborate lengths to which he will yeah. go. Yeah. His creativity in creating yeah. this bullshit story he's feeding this guy is mm. epic. Yeah, and, and, and it's at really this, great. And at this point here, this this particular prank is on the level of mischievous but not cruel. You know, yeah, not yeah. yeah. It's still funny, and and so it's just kind of beginning to set up. You know, what's going to going to follow? But it tells us so much about him. Yes, that he is so good at on the spot. Thinking quickly and setting up these contrived situations, but yeah, it's just it's just a wonderful scene. And I think that you're right that this one, this being the first one, mm. is so good. It, it's the first instance of the film mm. trying to get the viewer kind of on John's side mm-hmm. because this is a mischievous thing. Yeah. This isn't yeah. a cruel. This isn't no. a cruel act, mm. and it's so well done. And the mm. filmmakers go so far out of their way to make it an effective moment within within the story mm-hmm. this is the, the this is the first moment where the filmmakers are are pushing you as a viewer mm-hmm. to begin to identify with him to kind of yeah. like the character a bit yeah, yeah. because He's clever. He's smart. He's very good at Mm -hmm. doing these kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And then so as he continues to do these things and they get Mm -hmm. a little bit more outrageous Mm -hmm. and they get a little crueler and Mm -hmm. stranger and um, shall we say possibly the kind of thing that um, the police might be called in (laughs) on? Yeah, right. Yes, no kidding. Yes, very very possibly. the, The film... Draws you in and then gives you uh, more and more chances to pull away, but then undercuts that with a very strange and kind of bizarre bit of story that get that it almost seems to come in at a right angle to the rest of this story. Let's talk about that. So you don't know what she was confined to a nursing home. Now she insists on living alone. Are you cold? A little. I'd love to close that door, but I daren't. No. Why not? A few years ago, her three daughters went out of that door to go fishing. There was a very heavy fog. The boat was lost at sea or smashed against some rocks. They never came back. Marta went mad, and the shock paralyzed her. She thinks her daughters will come back at any time, and that they will come back singing, as they used to. Whenever there's a fog, she prepares tea for them. That's why I can't close that door. You understand, don't you? Yes, I think I do. The film works at showing you the kind of prickly nature of John as a character Mm -hmm. through... 
the fact that we're being shown, not that the other characters are being are being made aware of this, we're aware that he's got some plot mm-hmm. that he is setting up. Mm-hmm. He's got an end goal in sight mm-hmm. that uh, may or not be may or may not be just a practical joke. We yeah. don't know. Yeah, but there is this odd element that that comes in at a, almost a right angle. We're introduced to uh, three characters out hunting as night falls mm-hmm. in these in the countryside of this area of Spain. And uh, this young girl, I'd say about the age of 12. Mm-hmm. Seems uh, to be the daughter of a local hermit who's right. one of the first people to, is the first person to speak to John when he comes back into the, the, the town there. This girl is walking home and is intercepted by these three men and harassed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and as a matter of fact, harassed in a way that I think even in 1973 would have had anybody observing this ready to just slap these guys and go, yeah, hey, oh, yeah. stop, they're, they're, stop yeah. fucking with this young girl and let her yeah. go home. Yeah. To the point where she jumps into a little rowboat and goes out into the lake mm-hmm. to kind of get away from them. And they kind of play along and make a joke out of it. And then set up camp there on the lakeside and build a fire like they're waiting for her to finally mm-hmm. get cold enough to mm-hmm. come back mm-hmm. to the shore. Yeah, It's very, it, mm-hmm. it's very strange. And, you, and as this, scene play, this sequence plays out, intercut with other mm-hmm. bits of information that's going on at the same time that it actually involved... John and other characters, it becomes this strange moment in the film where you're not really... Because we've not spent Mm -hmm. any real time with these characters up till now. We know that one of them, we we see... Well, one of them is the husband of the older woman that John has apparently... Had an affair with when he was younger. Yes, I know. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. This rather attractive middle-aged woman. Freely keeping score. So John's sexuality is, shall we say, you know, so here's here's the loves of his life, his cousins and an older woman. So there you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's never made clear that he and this older woman had something going on. But it's very very clear Mm. that the older woman would not have a problem with it. And as a matter of fact, may have hinted at that. Before he went away to the asylum and is now a little worried that, you know, maybe that's one of the things well, that unhinged him. We're not sure. Well, and John, lovable scamp that he is, has been bugging her bedroom there. And, and so know. he knows how often she knows that she he knows that she and her husband have, have are sexually her Their sexual life is a bit challenged. And so anyway, this is so, the, so this husband woman's husband is, is, one, of, is yes, one of these three yes. guys. And at first, he's the one of these guys who does not seem to, to be who does not seem to who, he doesn't do anything to the girl. He doesn't say anything. But he also, and he, but he also doesn't interfere with the other three messing with her, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? But then once the girl does get too cold enough that she comes back to shore, yeah. and well, he throws her a rope, yeah. like is you know because he's 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 still kind of in the he's mode still of, like to, okay he, enough of this we've tortured her enough let's we, we need to get her back she's freezing out there so but as soon as she's on dry land yeah he's even worse than the other oh three. yeah yeah he starts I mean this is this is this is physical molestation right that's what that's what this man is doing to her mm-hmm. and just about then thank goodness mm-hmm. John happens by on his motorcycle mm-hmm. and essentially stops this this assault what well, looks to be I mean I, I I can see this was only gonna go one way yeah yeah this was going worse. this yeah. was going toward the gang rape of a small girl. Right. That's what this was mm. going to be. Mm. These men mm. were moving in that direction. It yeah. was a, it was a pretty horrifying moment to realize. Oh my God! I think that's where they're going yeah. with this. Yeah. And John shows up on his motorcycle and mm. kind of races around and pushes them out of the way and, and gets her onto the bike with him and takes her home. Yeah, takes her home to the her hermit father there. Yeah, and um, 
like I say, this this is a weird right angle because up till now the film has been showing us progressively. Okay, so he went to the slaughterhouse and quote unquote quote unquote yeah, learned what he needed to learn. learn. Yeah, um, these practical jokes mm. are escalating at that point mm. because they're they're becoming the kind of thing where it's like, yeah, it's funny to you, John, but it's yeah. really just kind of frightening to somebody else. Yeah. But at this point, you see him do this, and you're like, no, 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 this is unambiguously a good thing. Yeah. This is him rescuing a 12-year-old girl from mm. some men that it looked as if they were going to mm. rape this child. Mm. And so... It's kind of the one completely unselfish act through this main part yeah. of the film that we get from, from John. But it is enough, you're right, to kind of flip that switch on you know, what we've been thinking about him as he's been growing as a sinister character. Right. To suddenly start to see this other side of him, and I think it does the, also the dual thing of showing that John may not be the worst thing in this town. You know, in a way, John's arrival is kind of exposing, you know, other things that have been going on and are underlying in this town about well, what these people around him really are. That's another thing is that I think that this bit of information and mm-hmm. the way the fu- the finale of the film plays out. If things like this can happen in this place, if mm-hmm. this is mm-hmm. something that is just, if not necessarily the norm, but something that can happen right then, this is the kind of thing that also could very easily have happened in the past and yeah. will happen in mm-hmm. the future. Mm-hmm. Is John the kind of person that would be grown out of that kind of ground? Mm-hmm. Is is mm-hmm. what's wrong with him? Is his, um, shall we say, uh, confused mental nature, mm-hmm. his... his unbalanced self is it because he's in such a place that would allow this kind of thing that would look upon this kind of thing as something to not be overly concerned with in other yeah. words uh, are these are, is this the kind of action that he may have witnessed multiple times in his yeah. life yeah oh, well I think that one of the key questions I was going to throw out there just to me is as I think was interesting is it's very obviously try, drawing a I think we're supposed to draw a parallel between John and the fact that at the same time John arrives in town, literally the exact same time, this massive bell arrives in the town. And yeah. they are they are dragging this bell towards this tower that's being constructed, the church. They're doing a tower, mm. tower a, a bell tower reconstruction on the mm. local uh, mm. on the local church. Right. Yes. And I I think, you know, the question of what does the bell represent and why is it what is its ties in with John is I think maybe the idea that of seeing John is almost like the town sins coming home to roost. Like he's the embodiment of all this coming back to a reckoning. You know, it's going to be, it's time for a reckoning from some of these people in the town for all these things that they've done. And he's signaling that as in the way that a bell signals, right. you know, I think it's kind of what yeah. that's the, that's exactly where I was going to go. Yeah. It's like if, if, if the film is working really hard and it is yeah. to draw a parallel between mm-hmm. John's arrival and the bell's arrival. I mean, mm-hmm. the film goes way out of its way. Oh sure. Yeah. To draw that parallel. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, okay, what does the bell in a bell tower of a church do? Mm. That's the central, mm. lo- that's the, the locus of, mm. the, of the entire village mm. from the moment that the church was constructed. Mm. And the ringing of that bell is what you, what you the ringing of that bell was to draw people together, to uh, affect warning to the countryside mm. about some problem. Uh, that bell is there for multiple reasons, mm. but primarily it's there to summon everyone together, either uh, out of uh, necessity, mm. uh, to, to you know, to to worship, or uh, out of uh, fear. Mm. If we're going to see a parallel between the bell and, and John, mm. uh, yeah, his arrival mm. upsets 
all of these things. Yeah. And I think that this moment where he rescues this girl is where we see him for pretty much the only time until that final third of the film mm-hmm. interacting with someone other than his family. Yeah. And his actions when he's inter- when he's mm-hmm. dealing with those outside forces when he's dealing with people who are not part of his family is to disrupt this horrible thing that's happening to stop it dead in its tracks and it's once again a completely good act mm-hmm. but in my opinion not the norm no oh, it yeah, is yeah. so it's incredibly disruptive to the way that this girl's fate was to be attacked in this way yeah because she's a cute little 12 year old mm-hmm. girl mm-hmm. she's cute it's it's clear that when this when this woman Starts to 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 look at boys and think of them as something other than those irritating things that throw throw mm. rocks at me. Yeah, <laughs> this is going to be a, a a pretty girl who's going to have mm. the pick of the men around her, mm. and so this is the moment at which this girl's life was going to be torn in yeah. a way yeah. that would have colored her view of yeah. life for the rest of the time that she existed. Yeah, and yeah, he stopped it. Right, so. It, if he's the if he's the bell, him being there, him existing, him yeah. ringing, yeah. stop that and change her fate. Right. And now we can't say how, but because we're not going to spoil things. But we but this also this act yeah. ties totally into the ending of the film. It's not so it's not as random as it may seem at the moment, but it also kind of speaks. It also shows another side of John's calculating. Uh, you know, and I'm not yeah. suggesting he immediately saved. You know, I don't think oh, we're no, supposed no, to no, think. No, no, no. But is no question that. This incident does still tie. He uses this incident to again tie into something he's got planned, his master plan, which all comes together at the end of the film. So yeah, yeah, and it's kind of terrifying. Like I say, I, I will refuse. I refuse to ruin this film yeah, because no, no. I, I think that it's um, the colder you come to this, the more yeah. the more impre- impressive it's going to be. And I have a I have mm-hmm. a question for you about mm-hmm. um, let's let's just say the. Uh, some things I've read about the number of times some people have had to to, to watch this film to mm-hmm. kind of grasp the ending, which I don't quite comprehend. Anyway, mm-hmm. uh, I don't I don't see why it would take you more than one viewing to understand mm-hmm. the end of this film. It's very mm-hmm. obvious. Mm-hmm. But the um, amazing thing to me about the the level of writing involved in this movie, even though we're talking about a Spanish film and we're watching it through an English dub. Mm-hmm. First of all, it's a, first of all, it's a great dub, and this is back mm-hmm. when people worked really hard to get yeah. these to get these dubs right. to be as effective and as uh, this is this is back when it was an art form, man. <laughs> this, yeah. is this is good stuff. Yeah, oh yeah, and yeah, and this is this is a, this is a this is a joy to behold because there's so much built into the way things play out. As you and I have covered more and more of these Spanish horror films from the '60s, '70s, and '80s, we've learned more and more about what it meant to be producing movies in Spain mm-hmm. during the reign of General Franco. Yeah. Before the dictator died right. in the mid-70s. We're t- we've talked you know, extensively about the, the, cens- the censorship and the, you know, the, the mm-hmm. most basic things like uh, the, the <clears throat> shooting a nude scene and then shooting a clothed version so that uh, the film could be shown in Spain. Things of this nature. But mm-hmm. there are, and we talked about this a lot with A Candle for the Devil as well, mm-hmm. the more subtle things that are being built into the stories themselves and the way the stories are told. And I can't help but think about very clearly the setup within this story Mm -hmm. and what it kind of spells out about um, possibly Spain. Yeah. Now, 
This might seem a bit of a stretch, but yeah. I don't really think it is because mm-hmm. I think that most of the filmmakers and even 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 the Blind Dead films are mm-hmm. are built in such a way as to be something that comments upon Spanish culture, yeah. Spanish society at the time the films were made. Yeah. So I can only see a bell from hell. Well, not only, but when I start thinking a little deeper into the story and its construction, mm-hmm. I see another commentary on uh, on Franco Spain, mm-hmm. and it seems that. There's a, the thing that stands out mm-hmm. is one of the, and we learned this from the Frenchman's Garden, mm-hmm. doing our research when we covered the Frenchman's Garden. One of the main ways in which executions were carried out in Spain mm-hmm. was uh, hanging, uh, mm-hmm. constricting the throat. Right. So without giving too much away and not saying any details, there is a hanging that mm-hmm. takes place inside this film. Mm-hmm. Which is played out as an execution. Yeah. Well, the fact that hanging appears to have been the main form of execution of prisoners mm-hmm. within Spain all the way up into the 70s. Yeah. Uh, of course, it was a way of execution in, throughout the 60s in England and a few other countries as well. Tends to make me think, okay, well, there's there definitely is something to read into this if you think about it. And the the, the more you think about it, it seems like maybe... The innocent cousins maybe represent the complicity of the people who, because remember this all stems from the Spanish Civil War, the the innocent cousins would represent the the complicity of the people who didn't fight fascism. In mm-hmm. other words, mm-hmm. they didn't they didn't try to stop mm-hmm. Juan from being sent away. <clears throat> mm-hmm. They didn't they didn't say anything about it. And now that he's back, they're perfectly fine. They're perfectly happy going along with. The situation, as a matter of fact, one of them immediately, almost almost immediately, wants to, mm-hmm. you know, jump into bed with him and have sex with him. And and I think we're told, or at least implied, that the oldest one at, at one point had accused him of of trying to rape her, which we get the impression that he at that that he did not at that point. You know, that it was maybe more that she wanted him sexually and he didn't. He may have refused, and then she accused him of of, right. of the rape. The oldest, the oldest of the cousins, I think. Right. You know, that we have that sort of past between them there. And then you're right, the second, the middle cousin, who's played by Christina Von Blanc from uh, Virgin Among the Living Dead. And I did not recognize her at all. I I didn't either. I had to have it pointed out. Um, And uh, she plays the middle one, who, like you said, almost immediately, like, they enter back into their, you know, their sexual... uh, Their sexual sexual play. Truly overly sexual. And then the youngest one, who was probably, who sort of get the impression, who's played by Maribel Martin uh, from The Blood Spattered Bride. Yep. Uh, She... um, she obviously was probably so young at the time before he got sent away, and she still has that kind of obviously looks like a little bit of idolization of yes. him. She's kind of the one who's the easiest on him, thinks you know, kind of obviously looks up to him. Uh, although towards the end, we kind of started to get the impression that she maybe have an sexual attraction to him too, or but I think she's also attracted to the fact that he went away and kind of experienced the world, and that's what she right. really wants to do. I you think, know, and I so think I think that's that that's really her, kind yeah. of like more because she talks about going away with him, but I think it's almost more of like a because she she wants out of there and to see the to see the world like he did. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's that's uh, that that you're right. The way the interaction with the the cousins that's an interesting point though. You know what you well, said. Well, not about only that. that. Remember, um, John's parents were part of the aristocracy. They were yeah. wealthy yeah. people. Yeah. So John would have been. You know, is easily viewable as mm-hmm. part of the old guard mm-hmm. wealth, you know, wealth that hung on and then suffered under mm-hmm. this this entire fascistic regi- regime, mm-hmm. where they were able to retain the 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 kind of the the outer facade of being mm-hmm. uh, an aristocratic, you know, upper class group of people, 
but unfortunately we're, con- we're constantly having that chipped away at until it really was just this hollow shell yeah. to the point where now you have these families fighting with each other. You have this aunt, mm-hmm. you know, tr- you know, putting the, this young man away to retain control over the money. And what has been missing from John's family structure his entire life is a father figure. Of now, course. I wonder if there's if this film is in some way. I wonder if that's part of the point it's trying to make, or if that was part of the the feeling of why John is is ends up as badly as he did is because he didn't have a father figure. You know, I'm not saying that we necessarily agree with that. We're of course viewing it from you know our time period and from yeah, but right. once again with the Spanish culture, I don't know how much a part of Spanish culture that was, but but I'm just saying that. You know, because we know that he did know his mother for a while, but she died when he was right. really young. Uh, there's possibly, I think, a lot of the film makes us we're supposed to leave us wondering: Did she really die, or was she, you know, was she possibly murdered? I yeah. think we're supposed to question that. Doesn't tell us, but we do know that his father. I don't think he ever knew. And there's one part where it might even be his aunt, but somebody in the film says to him, "You should have had a father. Or I wish you had had a father, or something to that effect." Right. Which got me to wondering, like, is well, that part of the is that part of the message that the filmmakers or the writer is trying to send too? That he feels like that. That's some. That's one of the reasons that John ended up as, you know, as twisted as he was, is the fact that not just that he grew up, not just that he grew up in a, in a family of of you know of, of was brought up by women, but yeah. the fact that he was brought up by women who had such agendas and you know and had you know that had these designs on him or for him. But it also works as part of the com- as a possible way of viewing this this film as a commentary on. Hmm. Remember, in the Spanish Civil War, most of the people who died were men. Right. So yeah, that's about so that there was, too. Yeah. So, there, so there was a dearth of, mm-hmm. of shall we say, father figures for a gener- for a generation. Yeah. And with this being 1973, him being in his mid twenties, that fits. Mm-hmm. That fits yeah. the timeline Absolutely, of yeah. his father and the the whole generation that his father would have been a part of, having been decimated by mm-hmm. the Spanish Civil War in the late thirties. In, in, in the late thirties, so. What we have here is a continuing, a continuing wound mm-hmm. created by the this war, this very insular country where, and for better or worse, the country does have a father figure. It's, yes, that's right. It's the he, dictator. Very much, yeah, yeah. It's the dictator, but mm-hmm. it's a very twisted, mm-hmm. a, a very twisted way of having a father figure because he's a, a fascist dictator. Yeah, you know, yeah. whose you know whose word is law. And who cut, you know, until mm-hmm. the, the mid-60s has cut the country off from, you know, even associating with other countries, even, even in Europe. So that is, which is why I think um, some of the dialogue, the younger the younger uh, cousin, you know, speaks about, yeah, you're right. She is mm-hmm. utterly impressed with the fact that he's gone somewhere other than this little yeah. village. Yeah. Even if he hasn't left the country. Mm-hmm. He's traveled further than her, and it's clear that her intention is to get out. Mm-hmm. She wants to travel. And I think that that aspect of her character is very much in keeping with the younger generation of Spanish society at that time that was pushing and pushing and pushing, and want, wanting you know more freedom, wanting mm-hmm. the ability to do and see and, and be things that they were not being allowed to be mm-hmm. for their entire lives at yeah. that point. Yeah. And the older generation had kind of absorbed that. Right. 
partially because because they had to, and partially because they still remember the war. Yeah, you know, the the younger generations born after the war, mm-hmm. they don't have those memories, and they don't have that mm-hmm. association with you know the fear of what that time was like. And every country's had to deal with that. You know, I mean, yeah. you know, the, the England has, Germany has, America has, you know, Japan. I mean, they've all we see that play out in, in their films. You know, then the right. way they depict their societies and, and the dealing with the generation that lived through it. And the one that didn't have to. And once again, it's only in almost all of these countries and all these cultures, it's best played out, at least from my perspective as a genre fan, within the horror film genre. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it, you see them addressing this through symbolism, through mm-hmm. allegory. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that, um, you know, we've talked about that a lot with with some of the things that Nash used played with and mm-hmm. some of the other Spanish horror films that we've talked about, where they're very much talking about. Mm-hmm. Their own circumstances within Spain, yeah, but doing it in very coded fashion that allows mm-hmm. them to speak about these things and get away with it because mm-hmm. oh it's it's a monster movie or mm-hmm. oh it's it's a horror movie about you know interfamily squabbles mm-hmm. and revenge. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's wonderful I think to be able to see these movies as just horror films yeah. because if you sat down and watched a Bell from Hell and just mm-hmm. watched it as a horror yeah. picture. Mm-hmm. You're going to enjoy it yeah. very much because it's incredibly effective. It yeah, does it its job well. It yeah. ad- it adheres to the strictures of the genre. It hits its points. It does it cleverly. Mm-hmm. It does it in some really creative ways. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't take much. Like I say, the movie kind of hits you over the head with it in the first few minutes yeah. by making sure you understand that the arrival of the bell and the arrival mm-hmm. of John yeah. are kind of the same thing. Yeah, yeah. The film... Doesn't, didn't have to be this way, but the fate of John and that bell are tied together. Yeah. Another little smaller aspect of Spanish culture that came to mind, and I'm sure that we were going to talk about it at some point, and we might as well bring it up now, that if there was <laughs> nothing else, if no, if we had nothing else to tie it back to the uh, Paul Nashi films, is the song that frequently pops oh, up in this film. That's true. The old childhood lullaby of Frere, Frere, Frere Jaca. Yeah. And if anybody's followed Nashi's career or followed our podcast and has watched the classic Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll. Yeah. Uh, that song plays prominently in this in that film, and it plays prominently oh, in this yeah, film. And I, in my notes, I wrote, I wrote, uh, this song must have really traumatized Spanish children because because these filmmakers are just obviously ter- obviously just using it for all this sorts of psychological. But um, well, I think that it's also and I, it's used mm-hmm. in Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll and here. I think for to, for a similar reason, which is that it it immediately conjures up. Mm-hmm. Childhood innocence, mm-hmm. and yeah. um, that's why it's used in this story. Yeah, we left out that we left out the detail. We're leaving out a lot of detail about this film because it's just packed with it. But there's a so much of this film is told visually, and one of the neater things in the first third of the film is watching John watching John come home and look through albums of photographs from when he was a child, interacting mm-hmm. with his three cousins mm-hmm. and with his mother. Mm-hmm. And then even getting out uh, these old eight millimeter uh, home oh, movies. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, nineteen seventy three eight millimeter home movies. These people had wealth. They're yeah, in Spain oh, yeah, yeah. and they own mm-hmm. a, a an eight millimeter film mm-hmm. camera and are able yeah, to shoot absolutely. their children at play in the yard. Yeah, yeah. That's another indicator that would mm-hmm. be much clearer to mm-hmm. I think someone seeing this film in Spain. Mm-hmm. Oh, then these people really were wealthy. Mm-hmm. This the, the way that the state of this house and the state of this family now really is degenerated from what it was pre-Franco, pre-the yeah. Civil War. And so um, 
we see him looking at all these at these old uh, images of mm-hmm. his childhood and his cousin's childhood, and they're playing together and all mm-hmm. these things like this. And that innocence, that loss of innocence, seems to be one of the driving forces that that pushes John to do some of the things that he does. Because you can sometimes see him wanting to wanting to say something very forceful mm-hmm. and mean spirited mm-hmm. to his aunt, and he he chokes it back and he makes a joke and he turns it aside and he does something different or he yeah. you know he pretends to be playing uh the uh, is it the, the harpsichord or piano? Uh, I believe it is a harpsichord with the sound yeah. of it that yeah, it's, yeah, that yeah he pretends to be playing yeah. it and yeah. then shows them that he's yeah. actually just playing a bit of tape and that yeah. he's faking playing it and uh, things like this he's always doing something to almost as if if he didn't have those distractions then he would have an outburst he would have an mm-hmm. emotional outburst mm-hmm. that would give the game away and make them very much more wary about being around him so that it would be harder for him to do what he wants to do yeah and I think that you know the the way that the way that Frere Jacques is used in both this and Blue Eyes, the Broken Doll, the way that it's used in different scenes to give convey yeah. different emotions, uh, it just fascinates me. And I truly do think that it was a pure coincidence, but it truly, it, I think it's amazing that, because this film was 73, depending on what you read, Blue Eyes, the Broken Doll was either 73, 74. You know, I, I don't think it's possible that one could have really influenced the other. No, you know, if I, one of them had come out and been just some massive hit and then the other one came out, you might think. But otherwise, I truly think this was just two parallel things that had happened, at, which I think is fascinating. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's the inherent creepy nature of the damn song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's ubiquity. Yeah, it's not exactly. as It's not as if, I mean, it, it doesn't It doesn't matter what Western culture you go to. If you hear mm. that song, you don't mm. even have to speak you French. Think of, you think childhood. You think exactly. of kids, children. You think children's lullabies, which right. you think of, yeah. You, you, you don't even have to know yeah. the words of the song or right. any, have any context for what's for it whatsoever other than to know yeah it's just mm. a, a child it, it immediately keys into that yeah and um that's it, it's it's wonderful i like the fact that in well in blue eyes the broken doll is just creepy from jump oh, street it is. yeah right but in this film it starts out as this kind of melancholy mm. tune mm-hmm. that plays as we see john coming home and looking mm. through those photographs and then becomes something that mm becomes creepier when it re- yeah. when it reoccurs because we're we're privy to the at that point we're 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 privy to mm-hmm. some of the internal thinking that John is having and, and just how curdled his thoughts have become mm-hmm. and how he really has set himself a task that is more than cruel actually mm-hmm. Dr. Queen Kiro he um, you didn't report to him what for I'm not going back well, you're still on probation. Don't forget, John. The other day I was going through your accounts. The first of each month, you transfer 50,000 pesetas to the clinic from my account. Your, um, your treatment is very expensive, John. And 100,000 more to Dr. Queen Kiro, personally. Why? What do you think? Perhaps so they could give me extra special treatment. If I'm declared insane, you'll have the money forever, won't you? We mentioned at the top of our discussion um, something about the director that we kind of shied away from, and that's because it's it's a little unpleasant. Um, mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the director of this film Claudio Guerin Hill. Sadly, he passed away uh, just from what I've read on the last day or so of mm-hmm. production. Yeah. Um, 
we mentioned the bell tower that's being reconstructed as the story goes on, and he fell from the top of that bell tower, fell about 20 meters, and mm-hmm. died. Mm-hmm. Um, he was pronounced dead before they, before they even got to the hospital. Now, I've always read this as being uh, an accident, but there are some there, there there are some reports where people say that it might might have been a suicide, but I, I find think that, that a little spurious. I don't I, Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's hard to say because I think there weren't I think literally the problem is that there were, were no witnesses. Nobody right. really knows, and so the question will always be and of course, people tend to now want to read too much into this film, romanticize too much of it to say like because the film is so dark and melancholy you know well people will a lot of you know will look and say like you know that he this was premeditated or say that this was a disturbed you know that this was you know that this was something he planned to do or something you know but it could have very much well it could have very well been an accident but the thing is nobody saw it so nobody knows yeah so i think i think my my memory when i originally learned about this was that it was an accident and i think that that that's Hmm. probably the way it goes Mm -hmm. and it's a real shame because um absolutely this is the only i have to admit this is the only one of his films i've seen yeah uh he'd done only a handful of feature films and several shorts Mm -hmm. but um this is an impressive film and i would have Mm -hmm. loved to Mm -hmm. have seen where this very very creative man would have would have been able to go from here especially that uh, in 1973 they were really only uh, a few years away from the death of Franco and the the mm-hmm. the much wider birth given to mm-hmm. the creative arts yeah. within Spain. Mm-hmm. He was a young man and would have yeah. lived to have lived you know would have lived to go through those mm-hmm. changes in his country and to have been able to possibly thrive. Yeah. One would hope, but yeah. um, so sad but true, and it does of course immediately draw. Uh, a parallel for me between his death and the death of British director Michael Reeves, who uh, we only got three feature films from, and Mm -hmm. he passed away after completing Witchfinder General with Vincent Price. And it's just another one of those instances where um, you see a career, you know, stopped Mm -hmm. far too, far too, you know, far too early, this premature end of 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 a burgeoning creative person and, no, no one can be happy about that, and all the, all minds ter- turn immediately to what could have been, yeah. what 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 amazing work mm-hmm. possibly existed just on the horizon from these people, and so it, it that is sad, but I I think that it's amazing we had um, another man step in, um, uh, Bardem, mm-hmm. uh, I can't remember the yeah, the, the director's full in. name, step yeah. in, finished the the last uh, shots that were needed for the movie. And unfortunately, it adds. I mean, it, it definitely adds, and it does add another layer of melancholy to the film. Yeah. Every time you see that bell, and every time you see that tower, it just adds another layer of you know to yeah. to it. You know, as as far as knowing what happened there, you know, it's it's it, it adds to a film that already has a great level of a layer of sadness to it, or in tone of sadness to it. But nevertheless, this is an extremely good film, Absolutely. and uh, since it's his last creative mm-hmm. offering to the world thank goodness that it is so well preserved now yep. it's such a good movie mm-hmm. it and needs to be preserved even better though we need a blu-ray <laughs> yes yes indeed i think that uh the fact that there has been no i wonder if it's a i wonder if it's a rights issue i wonder if no idea. Uh, really but th- mm-hmm. there needs to be a really nice blu-ray presentation of this mm-hmm. out there somewhere i mean the dvd is perfectly good mm-hmm. but my goodness um not just with the career and unfortunate end of that the director during the making of the movie, but just the cast alone mm-hmm. shows you. I mean, mm-hmm. this is something that hey, there needs to be some there needs to be some extra features, some interviews, some, yeah. something out there yeah. with some of these people. And um, if nothing else, 
let let Spanish let, let Spanish film historians, yeah. not even necessarily horror aficionados, but mm-hmm. those people that would bleed over from the art house crowd, the people who, you know, would be mm-hmm. drawn to this film mm-hmm. because one of the actors worked with Visconti, things like that. Those, those yeah. you know, oh man, what a, what what a great idea! Get on that, people. And while we have uh, rightfully so given so much uh, praise and, and credit to the late director, we also need to mention oh the screen the screenwriter, yes. um, Santiago Mancada. Um, this man's credits are a feast for the film fan because mm-hmm. not only did he have the story and screenplay credit on this, he had a story credit for on uh, All the Colors of the Dark, uh, the the insane Rico the Mean Machine. <laughs> yes, insane. The is same word. year, I know. The same yes. year. Uh, the the Swamp of the Ravens, mm-hmm. which is uh, if you've never seen Swamp of the Ravens, I have not seen Swamp of the Ravens. You, I want you, to. But you need to see it. I, I do I, want to see that one. That's a film that my first time through it years mm-hmm. and years ago on bootleg. Uh-huh. I thought, what the hell is this crap? <laughs> and then the second and third time uh-huh. I saw it, I thought, ah, I get this thing now. <laughs> he did Cutthroats Nine. Yes, he did. He wrote Cutthroats Nine, which uh, if you've ever if you've paid any attention to, to to Troy and I when we talked about when we talked about that film for a podcast and when we've talked about it when it comes up repeatedly yeah. <laughs> throughout the history of this podcast, uh, that that right there that credit alone is mm. is is enough to make us big fans of this man's writing. Absolutely. Curse of the Black Cat. Mm-hmm. I think he did uh, All the Colors of the Dark. I believe he did. Yeah, yeah. He 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 did the he had a story credit on All the Colors. Right, of the Dark. right. Yeah. Although it's uh, I believe it's primarily an Ernesto Gastaldi script. Yeah. Um, but he also uh, wrote Rest in Pieces in the late eighties for Jose Larraz, and he wrote mm-hmm. a couple, at least a couple of scripts for nineteen uh, eighties movies made by Jess Franco. I think he's got at least a credit on uh, um, Hatchet for the Honeymoon. Oh yeah, 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 that's right. For Baba, you're right. Mm-hmm. Hatchet for the honeymoon, I think which I really enjoyed script, that yeah. one. Yeah, I always enjoyed that movie a lot. Uh, he also wrote a film called Tarzan and the Brown Prince. I know, I have no, no. idea what the hell that hmm. is. No, but, but if it's Tarzan, you got to see it. It's <laughs> probably a Tarzan ripoff. Uh, more likely, it's probably a guy in a yeah, jungle film and like. Well, there's a guy in loincloth. We'll just call him Tarzan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. But he also uh, has a story and screenplay credit for a film that I have sung the praises of for years now on this podcast, and mm. I'm still stunned that there has not been some real release of this movie, The Corruption of Chris Miller. Yeah, I've heard you talk about that many times. I want to see this movie, yeah. Um, I am not surprised that the man who conceived this script mm-hmm. wrote something as brilliant as the corruption of chris miller as well mm-hmm. people uh seek out the corruption of chris miller if you've never if you've never uh heard of it uh or seen it at all it is a real treat if a bell from hell made you sit up and take notice corruption of chris miller is going to do the same thing and now let's talk about one of the things that those two movies have in common mm-hmm. without giving anything away about the endings is mm-hmm. that both of them have what some might refer to as subtle endings. Mm-hmm. I don't think of the endings of either A Bell mm-hmm. from Hell or The mm-hmm. Corruption of Chris Miller as being subtle at all. I think they're just very clever mm-hmm. and downbeat. Mm-hmm. A lot of movies try to end with a cymbal crash. Yeah, with a bang. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, like yeah. A... This movie and mm-hmm. The Corruption of Chris Miller, mm-hmm. written by the same man, mm-hmm. they end with almost like a brush across a snare yeah, drum, just yeah, tss, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just drawing your attention to something mm-hmm. and letting you understand mm-hmm. that that sound kind of reverberates through mm-hmm. everything you've already seen. Yeah, and um, like I said, not trying to give anything away, but 
these are the kind of screenplays that I, I, I the, as I said earlier, they demand your attention. They yes, demand you pay attention. Yeah, yes. Which again, I would say is a brave thing to do, particularly at a time you know, well before video, before repeated. When people may have one pass at it, you're making something that people are, are you at the time you think are only going people are going to likely have one pass at at the theater, whatever theater it's playing in, to still trust the audience to put it together, put things together, and think back on it. You but know, I there. think to a certain degree at that time, if you were if I think that maybe people expected to pay attention at the cinema more than they may necessarily oh, from, I think the, so, yeah. from the 1980s yeah. on. Mm-hmm. I think this, because remember 1973, we're still And if they want to see a film again, they have to go back to the cinema and see it again. Right, right. Want, yeah. And so I think it's, it's always easier to absorb a film in the theater the first time through because there's nowhere else for your attention to go. Yeah. Unless, you know, yeah. unless you're in physical pain. Yeah, right. Or, <laughs> or you're being distracted by some, you know, some mm-hmm. moron in a, in a seat mm-hmm. near you or something like mm-hmm. that. Your attention or if you're is copying a fun- feel with your, you know, the person you're with, you know, <laughs> yes, your date, you know, exactly. Yes. So, I, I, I don't know that it's, it's, it's. I don't know how much it's changed. I don't know if there's mm-hmm. a way to measure it. No, but I think that it may not. He, the, the script writer and the and the director of, of say this film or the corruption of Chris Miller may not have thought that it was asking too much of an mm-hmm. audience to mm-hmm. actually just freaking mm-hmm. pay attention. Yeah. to what's being played out in front of you. Mm-hmm. But I do think that. Uh, these days, I'm, I, I have to admit that I am surprised <laughs> when I go mm-hmm. to a thriller of some mm-hmm. type yeah. um, in the past, say, 15 or so years, mm-hmm. and it does play with a subtlety. Yeah. And it does not double, triple, and quadruple underline uh, yeah. each clue so that yeah. you understand exactly what you're looking for later on. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, uh, well, I, I have to say recently, uh, a film that, that surprised me by pulling by pulling some really interesting, subtle tricks and by being... Character driven in a surprising way was the uh, the crime film Widows, mm, okay, which is a very strong script. I've heard it's really good, uh, but it, it, it's but it's also being made by a man who uh, who, who previously made uh, Twelve Years a Slave, so he's already mm-hmm. got mm-hmm. a certain amount of uh, power over yeah. being able to maintain mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. maintain some create uh, creative control over a script that that may or may not have been written in such a subtle way. I don't know, yeah, but um, yeah, I, I I don't know. That uh, I think I may have just undermined my own argument about people being less willing to uh, watch. It. I think widows and other films yeah. that I can that I'm yeah. going to now yeah. keep my mouth shut about yeah. can actually, may actually undermine my. Maybe they're just not as common. Let me yeah, put it that there way. There, I, I just I just saved myself. Thank you, thank you, Rod, for throwing that line to shore and reeling yourself back in. But uh, once again, let's. Let's emphasize that if you've not seen A Bell from Hell and you have mm. any curiosity whatsoever, we're we're going way out of our way to not spoil basically the last half of the movie. Mm. It's a 92-minute long movie, 91, 92 yeah. minutes long. Uh, don't be fooled by uh, some places you will see on the IMDb that the IMDb seems to think that for some reason this movie was 100 minutes long or 106 minutes long. No, it's not. No, there, no, it's that, not. That's, that's, a, that's false information. I don't know where that comes from. This movie is 90 or 91 minutes long. That's you're not missing anything. That's yeah. the whole picture. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it is available. I hate to say this, but it is available on YouTube. So it is it mm. is viewable there. I don't know what the state of that print is. Yeah. I don't know how good it looks or sounds. Uh, so it's it's not as if uh, I mean, like I say, the DVD is pretty cheap, mm-hmm. and you get the the extras of being able to see the uh, the uh, the clothed and unclothed scenes and stuff like that. So. Troy. Yes. End of the day, one to ten scale. What do you give a bell from hell? Oh boy, um, man, I just really, really like this film a lot. Um, 
I have to give it a nine, actually. Ah, okay, yeah. yes. Yeah, because yeah. um, at the end of the day, I, just, I really just don't, I mean, I think it tells, does what it does pretty pretty brilliantly, you know, so, yeah. I went back and forth uh, between an eight and nine, yeah. Yeah, that was kind of where I was in the, yeah. you know, but yeah, yeah. I think uh, it's like, yeah, just, you know. But I can't, I can't find any fault with it. Yeah, I can't find yeah. something that would push me, uh-huh. I mean, there's certainly nothing that would push it lower than that in my mm-hmm. estimation. It's a film I know that I will watch again, that I'm yeah. dying for it to come out on Blu-ray, you know, and, 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 and uh, so that I feel like a nine is justified in this in this case. It's a it's a great film. I I kind of I kind of wondered because mm. um, this was your first time seeing it. No, no, I had seen it once, it? but it had been just like oh, you. It, it had been ago. quite a while back. Okay. Now I had seen it. I think I saw it in almost the like really early days of the Nashi cast, like almost that first year or something. I think okay. when we were starting to get copies of you know, these films Various are trying to find films and things. And so I watched it then and, you know, of course we weren't planning on, or we knew at some point we might do a show on it, but I, I had it and watched it and, and I remembered really enjoying it, but just, I had forgotten just how, how impressive it is. So yes, it'd been quite a while, but one viewing for me too. So uh, I think we should now pat ourselves on the back for not spoiling this film. Yes. Yes. Because yes, my do. God, has it been hard? <laughs> it has. It has. Cause there's so much cool stuff Ooh, we can talk about. But, is, but, 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 Well, folks, that's uh, A Bell from Hell, and uh, we'll take a break now, uh, listen to these fine messages, and we'll be right back. I've always wanted to do that. (laughs) And now a word from our sponsor. (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Necrophilia. It's a dead issue, man. Don't don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this. No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, prudes. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in it. It takes a powerful goddess like Connie, jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. Oh, I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I, I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get it's out of it. unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this movie. Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even 17-year-olds should be watching this just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything that kept little history up. doll yeah, popping up absolutely. at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you you know, couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped from watching this shit at 12 years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was. How be did a rough you watch movie. this shit at 12? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. Hello and welcome to Hello, This is the Doom Show. I am Richard. And I hate the burning. Shh, who are you? Speak. <laughs> and I'm Brad. She came in and said, bark, bark, bark. <laughs> And he said, bark, bark, bark. And she said, bark, 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 bark. That's what I got. One is the Suspiria boner. The other is the Inferno boner. <laughs> which, anyway. Which one is crying? <laughs> The boner of tears. <laughs> Hello, this is the Doomed Show. Is available on Hello Doomed Show. Podomatic.com and Doomed Movie Hello, hello, this is the Doomed Show. Richard, Brad, Jeffrey, Nava. It's the Doomed Show. Hello, hello, this is the Doomed Show. Slash. 
we've checked the mailbag and we've got one piece mm. of mail from uh, <laughs> from a regular correspondent and uh, uh, annual contributor to the bloody pit, Adrian Smith over in the UK. He has once again decided that he can't uh, sit down to type anything out. Mm. He's just recorded something on his phone and shot it to us. So <laughs> we will check him out in just a moment. But remember, if you want to send us an MP3 with your rambling thoughts on whatever the heck you want to talk about, hopefully it relates in some way mm-hmm. to the podcast, yeah. the email address is nashicast at gmail.com. And uh, remember... We'll talk about whatever you bring up. Yep. So that can be dangerous. Yes, it is. We'll just ramble off, (laughs) and the podcast will become a link that it should not be. So please keep in mind that we have no control once we start babbling, and you're just unlucky enough that I pushed record. So let's see see what's on Adrian's mind. I, uh, Nashicast, Nashicast, whichever. Uh, Adrian here, out on location once again actually just walking through Eastbourne, which is where I live. Uh, and I'm enjoying your podcast on the Diabolical Dr. Z. I, uh, it, it, it's rare that I can actually join in on a Jeff Franker conversation, but I have seen this one. And I've also seen the statistic Graham Von Klaus and Dr. Orloff. And I'm, uh, I've seen a couple of the later ones as well, and I even tried to watch the Killer Barbies ones. So I, I feel like I've had a bit of a a cross section of Franco's filmography. And I did buy that Stephen Thorough book, the first volume. I had that uh, whenever that came out. Well, I did sell it about two years ago. I was very pleased that I only bought it for about 20 quid. And then, like, two years later, it was worth over 100. So I uh, I sold that baby. <laughs> I realized that I was probably never going to watch all the Franco films. I think Franco is a bit too out there for me, although I find him sort of fascinating, but not fascinating enough to want to d- dedicate the rest of my life to seeking out all his movies. But I, uh, of all the ones I've seen, I've seen a few of the other 70s ones. There's that one, what's it called? There's like a psychedelic chicken lady, and Howard Vernon is in it, and there's this weird torture scene over a pit of spikes. I can't remember what that one was called. Is it one of the Frankenstein ones? Um... Anyway, I like the black and white ones best, I think. I prefer, they're sort of like slightly pervy crimmies, and I like that. They feel more German than Spanish, I think, uh, in a lot of ways. And, uh, yeah, I definitely prefer those just from my own personal taste, and maybe that's just because I am a bit more ordinary, <laughs> I suppose, and a bit less out there. But, anyway, I nearly just got run over perfect time. Um... I was I going to say oh yeah so Diabolical Doctor Z I reviewed this when the Blu-ray came out for Screen Magazine and I really like it uh, and I what's interesting is that this is one of the this Franco film actually comes up in my uh, PhD thesis just briefly but I do mention it because it was distributed in the UK by SF Distributors uh, in I think. 1965, 66. Um, so yes, yeah, that uh, does get a brief mention. I found an original press book for it when I was rummaging through archives in a museum in London, which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, that uh, I really enjoyed that film and the, the sort of Miss Death, the uh, 
from Miss Muerte, the spider lady, she's really cool. And uh, yeah, I, I really like all the things that he did with this. And the fact that it's kind of a sequel, like you mentioned, to the awful Dr. Orloff. Uh, I too was surprised with the whole burning face thing, that they didn't go down the fiend. Uh, no, what's it called? Eyes Without a Face. I'm getting my Without a Face movies mixed up. Yeah, it's <laughs> I thought it would go down that route, but it didn't. But uh, still, I, I mean, what's not to like about this film? It, not all of it makes sense, but that doesn't really matter. It's very visual. And as you mentioned, the cinematography is fantastic. It's around this time, I believe, that Jess Franco was working with Orson Welles. And isn't that a great what-if? Wouldn't it have been amazing if he had got Wells in to appear in one of his films whilst Wells was doing his travelling around Europe uh, phase of his career? Um, it would have been really cool if he had popped up in one of Jess Franco's films. But I believe Franco was helping him out around this time on Chime to Midnight, I think it was. Chime to Midnight. Uh, maybe a couple of other of Wells' uh, European movies. But yeah, it's sort of an interesting crossover between uh, Hollywood and Franco, sort of. But anyway, yeah, I like to imagine what it would have been like if, in, uh, if Orson Welles had turned up in a Howard Vernon role in one of these movies. Um, but anyway, enjoying everything you've had to say about the film and about Jess Franco. Uh, I won't be buying the second volume of Stephen Thoreau's book partly because it's the later, the later period of Franco, which I'm far less interested in, but also there's no way I could have a book with that picture on the front cover in my house. Uh, <laughs> it just it just couldn't happen. Uh, it's bad enough with some of the books that I do have that receive disapproving looks from members of my family. That would really be uh, taking it up another level. Okay, anyway... Uh, Thanks again for all your hard work, and I'll uh, talk to you again soon. Bye. Well, Adrian, I completely understand what you're talking about with the cover of the <laughs> uh, the upcoming. Actually, by the time this podcast comes out, it should already be out. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Stephen the, the the new Stephen Thrower book on the uh, uh, later Just Franco movies. Uh, I have already pre-ordered mine. I can't. I can't wait for the damn thing to come out because I'm absolutely fascinated by by the the Franco films that uh, you. I completely understand. I completely understand your attitude towards them, but I find them absolutely fascinating. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I worry about Adrian. Uh, uh, you know, as he's he's wandering through these London fog shrouded streets and so intent on talking to us i'm always worried he's gonna like uh, walk out in front of one of those double-decker buses or something there and uh, so. i just figured that he's, he's recording himself just in case he gets mugged yeah <laughs> and then we would then we would therefore end up being you know he would push the button and we would be strangely enough the the mm. only the only ear witnesses to to yeah. this crime so i don't know i'm just waiting for him to be accosted by a london a cockney uh, prostitute cousin you know <laughs> calling him gaffner <laughs> as Adrian, Adrian. in his top coat and, ta- and, and and you know and his his, his tails and his and his you know his top hat and his, you know, wait what well, with his doctor's bag yeah exactly totally that's kind of what I'm Jack picturing the Ripper, too yeah. him here. <laughs> a- a- Adrian Adrian we we we, we want to know is that is that what you're doing are you in f- frog- froggy foggy and shrouded mm-hmm. you know uh, areas I mean Eastbourne I don't know how foggy it gets so I don't know <laughs> first of all a couple things one 
uh, Killer Barbies. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. If you if you jump straight into Killer Barbies, <laughs> boy, that's that's a that's about eyeball deep. That's, <laughs> yeah. That pool's eyeball deep, and you don't need to be making any waves in it whatsoever because uh-huh. you're already having trouble breathing. So I get it. Uh, yeah, out there, I, I that's just it, man. Mm. Once you once you commit to the Franco thing, the out the more out there nature of some of these things is exactly what draws you back to them. So mm. it's eh, I understand. Mm. I was where you are now <laughs> a long time back, uh, way yeah. <laughs> down the road behind me. But, yeah, I, I get it. I get it. Uh, and, by the way, the film that you were trying to remember uh, with a chicken lady. With the, yes, the chicken lady. First of all, outside of that that being a reference that nearly sent me into uh, Kids in the Hall spasms of laughter because I'm just trying to picture the chicken lady from the Kids in the Hall in a just Franco film. But the movie you're thinking about is The Erotic Rites of Frankenstein with uh, – uh, the absolutely gorgeous actress uh, Anne Bear, um, done up as kind of this bird creature, and uh, it's well, it's either I believe it's Erotic Rites of Frankenstein. It's either that or, or Dracula, Dracula Prisoner, Prisoner of Frankenstein. Right. I can't remember which one she is is dressed up that way, but she's she was also in uh, Virgin Among the Living Dead and uh, several other Franco films as well. Just an absolutely gorgeous woman. So yeah, you probably have seen Erotic Rites of Frankenstein. Which you know he had you know thirty seven dollars and you know seven, <laughs> yeah. seven hours inside a castle <laughs> and some actors who were willing to go go for broke so yeah yeah I understand mm. but uh, Adrian the uh, Franco films may not be for you but I'm glad that you can at least enjoy the black and white ones because mm. Diabolical Doctor Z is certainly uh, whew, if not top of the heap it mm. certainly shares the top of the heap status in, the, yeah. in that category and those are the films yeah where he had the time budget cinematographer you know everything yeah. kind of work and, and Franco flirted with the mainstream a couple of times in his career and, it, and you know, he mentions the Orson Welles tie in there and all the things that make you wonder you know uh, uh, what you know what might have been what what what, what could have been if he you know if he had gotten his foot in the door in, in actual making quote unquote mainstream or, or budgeted films are being you know hired more as a director than he than he was so I just don't think that it's I mean, it, but as, he, I'm not the first person to say he didn't want to do that so. yeah yeah no and I know that you know Tim Lucas has made the point before and you too you know is the kind of thing that you have those films that people are going to look at and say like boy Dive Off to Dr. Z is just so normal you know for in the sense of I mean it's just it's so effective and shows what this guy could have done if only he could have made more yeah, of those I mean, it shows but, it shows his kinks but it's also an extremely effective and, and yeah, linear film but so. it's also you know is that the true Franco I mean where if we really get the true in other words would people be as fascinated and discuss him as much if he had made a series of these competently yeah. well made he might be thought of as a, as, as, as a, a solid director rather than this madman who did all this fascinating well, bizarre yes, but, but the across argu- the board stuff you know that may be more truly who Jess Franco was but the argument you're making there and it, this just occurred to me the argument you're making there is that Franco could have had a career very similar to what Mario Baba had yeah yeah and, he, and I think he yeah. could have. He very. Yeah. I mean, if you look at those films in the '60s, mm-hmm. you see that he very easily could mm-hmm. have had a, a, a mm-hmm. career that, in some ways, paralleled mm-hmm. Mario Bava's uh, career. But I just don't think that's what he was interested in. And he wouldn't have. And you know, he he wouldn't have been this director who truly is in his own world. I mean, there's just yeah. Jess Franco. There's nobody else like him. Nobody else that you compare no. to. He's just Jess Franco. <laughs> you know, this is this is what he what he did. And there's nobody else <laughs> for better or worse. Uh, and, that's, that's, and for that's better like or for it, yeah. worse, uh, for better or for worse, cinema mm-hmm. uh, filmmaking mm-hmm. became his religion. Yeah, to a, mm-hmm. to a degree, I think yeah. that that's just you know one way to look at it is mm-hmm. you see those interviews with him, 
mm-hmm. in the last 20 years he was alive. And it's mm-hmm. it's very clear that he at some point made a decision that this is what I do yeah. and this is what I am. Yeah. And um, whether it was uh, an internalization that came about out of necessity to keep himself sane because mm-hmm. of the, the life choices that he had made and the mm-hmm. career path that he set himself on mm-hmm. and the difficulties that it mm-hmm. entailed, it still is how he viewed himself. It's and, like uh, this kind of I live to create. Yeah. And what I want to create is the hardest art form and most expensive art form that exists. to get made yeah. and the most complex that requires the most people to do it. And I'm not going to wait for somebody to put the money in my lap or come calling for me. I'm just going to do it into whatever it takes. He's someone to, no matter what, mm-hmm. you, he's someone to be admired. I think so. I think so. But Adrian, thank you very much for the, uh, I could call it voicemail. Do we call it a voicemail? I guess we can. We can. Yeah. And also, 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 uh, I'm not sure, but it sounded like you may have been a, I think we know why you thought of the bird lady, because I think you were being attacked by seagulls. It sounded like you were being, yes, either that or some small little yapping dog. I couldn't tell what it was, but it sounded (laughs) like something was, something was, was, uh, was, was buzzing you at that, at that point, at some point during your walk there. Something weird was (laughs) happening. But uh, once again, Adrian, thank you very much. And uh, if you want to join Adrian, you may send us uh, either something you type out or something you record and send to us oh. at nashicast at gmail.com. And we'd just like to say that uh, next month we, we won't have a, an episode here in the NashiCast feed. Uh, we'll be back here in May, but in April, mm. Troy and I will be over on the Bloody Pit talking about uh, the film Horror Island from 1941. Mm-hmm. Um, a not very often seen horror gem, in my opinion. That uh, I can't wait to uh, I can't wait to get uh, yeah your opinion. Yeah, I know because I've never seen this one, so I'm looking forward to this and looking forward to it. It's got a lot of people got uh, you know people we like in the cast and it's Universal 40s part of our series there going on. So yeah, it's gonna be good. And uh, when we come back here in May, Troy and I have decided we think we're we're probably going to finally get to a film that we have managed to forget yes. until now, uh, which is really silly. It was put out on DVD here in the states by BCI well over. Mm-hmm. Whew, Ten years ago now? Mm-hmm. Huh. Well, it was over ten years ago now. Uh, Leon Klamowski's film, The Dracula Saga. So that's what we'll be doing here on the NashiCast feed here in May. So keep your ears peeled for that. And if you can find a way to see The Dracula Saga, please do. I think that it's available to, to uh, stream on Amazon, mm-hmm. but I think it's one you have to rent. Yeah, Maybe it's out there on YouTube. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. So in May, back here on the NashiCast for the Dracula Saga next month. The Dracula Saga. Mm-hmm. Saga. Or, or Saga of the Draculas, as it's or called. Or Saga of the Draculas. We'll to... I was just making fun of my, <laughs> yeah, so, saga, my, saga. my, my southern pronunciation. <laughs> Dracula Saga. I, oh, man. Sometimes, I, I hate to tell you, man, as the guy who edits these shows, sometimes oh. I, listen, I listen back and I hear myself slip into redneck speak. Oh, God, I cringe. I cringe so, so hard. It's... I don't. I don't. I don't like it. I, I, there are people who. I know that there are people. There are people probably listening to this right now in other countries <laughs> who find it charming. But I got to tell you, to my ears, it sounds like somebody slept up behind me and stuck me with the stupid syringe. Oh God! Anyway, thank you very much. For there were things to be stuck with when someone sneaks it behind you, especially here in the South. This is deliverance. <laughs> this is deliverance of land. You know, by the way. So. <laughs> oh. Oh, that's, I don't want to, I'm going to not think what the, you're trying to make me think. I'm going on. So folks, once again, thank you very much for listening to the show. Thank you very much for your time and attention. Remember to uh, go over and vote for us 
for a Rondo Award. It'd be it'd be amazing to have one of those bizarre skulls. Line, or they're not mm. a skull. It's a, it's a whole head mm. lined Rondo's, up on our shelves. Rondo Hatton's beautiful head. Rondo Hatton's beautiful head. Uh, wow, you know that just just I just realized. You know, we keep going in that 1940s series over in the Lake. Mm. We're going to get to some Rondo Hatton. Uh, we sure are. Right? We'll get to some Rondo films. Oh. Or, or, yeah, that's right. Oh, they'll have to the give us one of them. Man. They'll have to give us one of them then, right? <laughs> yeah, of course, man. We'll, we'll, we'll force them by simply talking about a Rondo Hatton film. Maybe we could leap ahead in the timeline. Anyway, folks, I'm not I'm not desperate. I'm not. Stop making me think that I am. But thank you once again for listening to the show. I am Rod Barnett. Do they give a rondo for most pathetic? We might we might, we might most win pathetic whiners. We may get maybe we'll get that one. Anyway, he is Rod Barnett and I'm Troy Gwynn. <laughs> we will see you again next time.
That's the most <laughs> fucked up ending yeah. we've ever recorded. 